Hey again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite on the Oil & Gas Global Network. I am your host, Ryan Sanford. It's great to be back with you, and I have a couple of gentlemen with me today. I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation today and one that's very important for you guys to hear. I first want to introduce one of my buddies who's going to be helping me out today uh, and be my co-host, my wingman, Sean McCoy. A lot of you guys may may know Sean from being one of the hosts on the ESG podcast on the OGGN, so he's going to tag team this interview with me. Sean, great to have you here. Yeah, I appreciate it, brother. And like I said, I brought brought this, uh, I think he's going to be a great guest as well to you, and was happy to to be a part of it, not just introduction, but uh, throw my voice out there. So thanks for giving me some mic time, buddy. Appreciate it. Love the show, by the way. So I was happy to, <laughs> you know, I'm a fan, so I like to listen. Yeah. Anytime. Sean's been very helpful to me too on this journey of becoming a podcaster. He's, he's, he's helped me a lot behind the scenes. Um, he had a great idea for this show today. And, and I want to introduce you now to our guest, Chris Bentley. Chris is a Marine. He is the author of a book called Burning Bellatorum, the story of a $40 million fraud and its priceless lessons for investors and entrepreneurs. He is the former CEO of Bellatorum. Chris, thanks for joining us today, man. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. I appreciate it. Yeah, I know it's not easy for you to sit down and tell this story. Uh, We've had a chance to talk with you a little bit um, behind the scenes and just get a little bit of a sense of how this all came about, uh, you writing this book and your experience and then kind of where you are now. But I want to maybe first start back for the people who don't know this story, maybe never heard of Bellatorum. Tell us a little bit about the business, your role in helping that business get started and how you were able to grow that business um, back uh, several years ago. Yeah. So, you know, I, I grew up in East Texas and um, like a lot of, you know, guys that grow up in a, you know, blue collar family, I uh, enlisted in the military, in the Marine Corps, and right out of high school, and I thought I was going to be a lifer. Um, I was in for almost 15 years. I was fortunate enough to get my undergraduate degree while I was in the Marine Corps. Um, I studied political science with a focus in like international relations and conflict and stuff like that, something that was relevant to the Marine Corps. But when I got medically um, discharged unexpectedly in 2013, it was due to some, you know, more like budget cuts and everything. I did have some injuries, but, you know, probably could have um, recovered from those. However, anyway, it wasn't meant to be. So I moved back to Texas. And for those in the oil and gas industry, I think they'll appreciate this. Like, there's not much you can do in the oil and gas industry with a political science degree, <laughs> but you can be a landman, you know. So um, I got a job as a landman and did some right of way, you know, uh, midstream land, we refer, refer to it as a right-of-way agent. So I did that for two years, and then, as you know, uh, in 2015, the industry started tanking, so I was the new guy, and uh, a few days before Christmas in 2015, I got laid off from the company I was with, but I still um, saw a lot of opportunity in the space. It was in a very um, kind of, there's a lot of information asymmetry in the in the land side of the business, especially mineral rights and you know, so I started Bellatorum in early 2016, and it was literally at first just me, kitchen table startup, um, doing small deals on my own, providing services. I, I still, I would buy and sell mineral rights, provide a service to a bigger mineral rights company where they just paid me a commission to 99. Um, and it, you know, I started seeing it had some some legs and 
And I probably would have stayed as just kind of under the radar service guy for this other company, but, you know, got sideways with them, didn't really like how they were treating me and doing business and treating the landowners. So I just went out on my own. I got my wife to quit her job and help me do like the back office stuff and um, was doing bigger deals. And then I brought my first investor on in 2017, my first employee, a partner, a business partner. And we grew literally from a kitchen table startup to at its at our height and uh, we can get more into the details but by 2019 I had a hundred investors and 22 million you know that was by January of 2019 and then uh, by the end of 2019 I had over you know just over 40 million um, you know actually yeah probably 2020 is when I got to 40 million and about 21 employees and you know, so grew the company from there, and there it was a legitimate company. You know, we we had real wins, uh, true returns, real assets under management, uh, above board operation. Um, but in in uh, probably Q two of twenty nineteen is when I started doing things, uh, lying, committing fraud, or whatever, and ultimately uh, leading to the demise of the company. Um, you know, and, and not, uh, this isn't me justifying what I did by any means, but, uh, not your typical, you know, Wolf of Wall Street type fraud where, you know, I'm out with, uh, driving exotic cars and, and paying for, you know, lavish, uh, lavish lifestyle. But nonetheless, I, uh, committed fraud and, and it ultimately, you know, went and turned myself in just cause the guilt got to me. And, um, you know, I wasn't being investigated. Nobody really knew anything. I think the lenders that, Part of my forty million was a six point six million dollar loan, and I think the lenders had an idea that um, you know I committed fraud, and I and I I came clean to them first, not completely clean, but like I said, hey, I, I lied to you guys, and just give me a little bit more time, and I'll try to make it right, and then eventually it just got to where the guilt was. I was tired of lying to everybody and myself and my employees and my family, and I just went and turned myself in in uh, April of twenty twenty one. Shut wow. down the company. Yep. So when you talk about fraud, because I think part of the reason that you wrote this book is you want to also help companies, investors, make sure that they understand how to maybe spot potential fraud, what things to look for to make sure that you, you don't get defrauded. Um, could you walk us through exactly what you were doing to, um, as you said, you lied to folks and, and you uh, mis misappropriated funds, help us understand kind of what that, that looked like? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, like you said, I, I wrote the book for two reasons, to help investors and entrepreneurs in their investing or management um, activities, and then also to try to help uh, make restitution to my investors who lost money. Um, you know, I think when you're in the arena or in the trenches, it's very easy to get tunnel vision and to, um, you know, not understand what you're getting into or or to just be so blinded by you know whatever ego everything just the stress everything that you're dealing with and so this book i think i outline ways that not only can you spot uh, spot it ryan but i think what i try to do here more is prevent it by setting up structures in place that you know for investors to look for certain structures that don't or, or make it extremely difficult for fraud to happen and uh and I would ask that entrepreneurs or, you know, emerging managers put those boundaries on themselves ahead of time because no one ever, well, I shouldn't say no one, but most people I would 
wager don't think they're going to commit fraud and don't want to. But when, you know, excuse my language, but when shit hits the fan and you've got employees that you're looking out for, you don't want to lose money and you think that the only way you can avoid losses is maybe by, you know, lying or covering things up and just buy yourself some time, you know, that's not the right answer. And I think, um, I think, you know, there's lessons in those books. So to answer your question more specifically, you asked like how I did it, right? And um, the first thing I did was, you know, when I, when things started going south, these were normal operational challenges that any business would have, right? But we were such a young company that I didn't have the the runway, the financial runway to weather a storm or to correct it or anything. Like I was spending the management fee already. So, you know, if you think about an investment structure where you give somebody $100 and they got to spend $2.50, uh, you know, they get a management fee, I'm already in the hole 2.5%, you know, and I'm and that that's a, that's a, I'm allowed to take that money for the overhead, right? But I'm not allowed any more than that. And so 2.5% of a $22 million fund is not a lot of money for a 20-person company and big software, you know, and various subscription and all these things. And so I'm like, oh crap, what do I do now? Like, you know, what I should have done. And I've talked about this before with other, other people. And in the book, like it should just shut down the company and let everybody go back in early 2019. But I thought, okay, these are manageable. This is a, an honest mistake. It wasn't anything nefarious. It was like a data corruption, you know, where like the, the, the assets we were trying to buy, the data was wrong, and so we had to fix it. Well, um, we, we, ran out of, um, we ran out of capital, and so what I did is I went and raised to buy another asset. I told the investors it was, I think, uh, $6 million is what I told them, and it was really 5.6 or something like that, right? It was in that ballpark. So I used an escrow agent. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is one of the other fallouts that, you know, maybe the investors or people out there aren't aware of, like, <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> the, that, um, they're not aware that there are some kind of innocent bystanders who I, who didn't lose money by investing with me, but I used them to create these silos. And now they, are um, experiencing some negative fallout from my actions. But to, you know, to make a long story short, I would use a, an escrow agent. So I tell the, the investors to, you know, give us their money. Then I send the money to the escrow agent who knows nothing about my investors. They don't have any reason to ask, right? Like, you, hey, I want to close this deal. Let me put this money in your, hold it so I can hold this money to get this deal closed. When the, when the landowner sends, uh, you know, when the mineral rights owner sends the deeds, send them this amount of money. They don't know that I told my investors it was $6 million, right? So I tell the escrow agent to send the 5.6 to the mineral rights owner and to send 400000 to another entity that nobody knows about. And then I use that entity to transfer the money to Bellatorum so that then I can cover the payroll, the rent, the software, all that, buy a little more time. At this time, I'm thinking, you know, that was my first uh, crime, if you will. Um, you know, I think lying isn't a crime but it's it's unethical so i'm not saying that was okay that i lied to my investors but the first like hey i'm consciously making a choice to break the law was that that's like wire fraud or forgery i had to forge documents and like you know send documents with signatures on it that 
those people signed a six million dollar document, not a five points, you know. So I'm like, I've got forgery and wire fraud already there, but I'm thinking, look, I just bought myself a couple of months and I'll get it right. I'll, I'll make everything right. We'll sell all the assets. Everybody will none the wiser, you know. So you guys being in the oil and gas industry will appreciate this. This is 2019, specifically in the mineral space, but I think you all know in 2019, a lot of things started happening in the middle, you know, of in Q2 of 2019, the industry's starting to go down again. You know, we're in this new short cycle of this roller coaster that we've all been used to, but it was a long roller coaster, right? We usually had maybe, you know, eight to 10 year cycles, and now we're having three to five year cycles, right? So that's what happened in 2019. So I, I like, shit, I can't, I can't get this money. Like, so I do it again. I do the same thing. I keep digging a hole and then COVID in 2020, you know, and I want to be clear, I'm not blaming COVID on my (coughs) failure. It's, it's all because I, you know, I did wrong things and made bad decisions, but you couldn't go into COVID on your back foot. I don't, you know, show me somebody who went into COVID in, in a hole like that and then survived. So you know, kept digging, digging myself, doing that, those same type of things. Um, and there were there were no checks and balances as far as a, a system or policies in place that could have alerted anyone inside the company that you were doing these things. Well, um, look, it's a small company, right? Yeah. So uh, you, people always like, how can that happen? Yeah. What the board didn't know or the auditor? Like, mm-hmm. you know, most startups, I mean, we were still a startup by you know, definition, technically, you know, younger than five years, we, so there were not a lot of formal mechanisms in place. Now, and and even the requirement to get an audit, it wasn't a requirement. I got the audits, which I doctored, you know, to look good so that I could go try to raise more capital. Mm -hmm. And so um, the only mechanisms the investors had was per the operating documents, they were allowed to do an audit at their own expense anytime they wanted, but that's up to them, right? And so try to get 100 people to agree to to even just get on a phone call together, right, and say, hey, we want to audit this guy. Like, I don't know if any of the investors ever had suspicions of anything nefarious. I know for a fact they were worried because my 2019 performance as a fund manager was nothing like 2018. I mean, we got 60% annualized returns net of fees mm-hmm. back to our investors in 2017 and 2018. Like, and this isn't, you know, people, when they call it a Ponzi scheme, I get a little bit um, defensive. I, I mean, because it wasn't a true like Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. Yes, I use like, some investor capital and and um debt to like pay off some other investors and things but we had real assets it was a real business you know with an investment strategy and real real assets um but the to to answer your question i mean by creating these silos and you know if i had a third-party administrator the documents i sent him were different than the documents that i sent my internal accountant than what i sent the um you know, the county clerk, for example, the deed that the county clerk get is the real deed. That has to be. But, but you know, if I told, if it was 10 net royalty acres for real and people started asking questions about, um, you know, well, why'd you pay 200000 for this? Oh, because it was 20 net royalty acres, right? Mm-hmm. And I knew, well, I, I, I assumed and took a chance that nobody would know how to, 
verify what I was telling them because I mean, and you guys, again, being in the oil and gas industry know, you know, you need a landman to figure out. I mean, there's, there's an argument and, and even within our own industry, there's information asymmetry. Mm. One landman may get one net royalty acre and another one a different, and they'll argue over it for weeks, you know? So I was using that um, kind of inefficiency in our space and the information asymmetry to commit the fraud, like to, you know, to know, to have the confidence that I could keep people in the dark and get away with it. So. And Ron, you see now why, you know, you listen to a story and I, what I love, I always say love, I don't know if that's the right word, but what I appreciate the most is the honesty and the authenticity and just the, the pulling back the curtain and saying, you know, and not making an excuse per se and just kind of, and kind of being upfront about it, but then also identifying these pitfalls. And, and I look at it, I, I joined the, the Navy. I was in the Navy in, in 98, right around your time, right around the same age. And I, I put myself in this position and say, you know, I, I take integrity to a high degree. I, I always have, but this, but to act like that we don't understand or act like this is so far off. Like how, how would you ever, how would you ever do this? I think it becomes a little bit narrow-minded as we have these challenges, the pressures of being at the leadership position, which is why I thought of your yeah, show, right? Absolutely. Because you can journey to that C-suite, but what are you going to do when you get there and you are responsible for 10, 20, 30, 100 people in their lifestyle or stakeholder money or shareholder money and all the rest of these things. It's, it's not a, it's easy. I think it's really easy from the cheapest to say, I would never, but it also made me think, and you, you mentioned, I'd really love to hear what you say about this. We talked about it at lunch a little bit. You know, back to the, the big four auditing who came in and basically said, it's in, it's in the book, I was going to read it, but you, you touched on it, that you understood from game theory that they weren't going to be the ones that throw you under the bus and call the feds. So it makes me wonder, like from a philosophical standpoint, you know, we take integrity seriously. I remember you were talking about you thinking about the honor code and you were thinking about that and it was beating you in the head as you read this and thinking about integrity on your wall because we're taught that in the military and it's supposed to mean something. And it just, I, I think that challenge of helping under, helping us understand when, when does that go away or when does it not hold enough weight to make you do the right thing and really trying to understand that paradox. And it's not as simple as I would never, because it's, we all have that tendency, I would think. Yeah. So what you're, what, what you're uh, referring to in the book um, about the big four audit uh, firm, um, it, it's not necessarily the firm, but the some of the lenders I was dealing with, um, I had several lenders, but one group in particular, their founders, it was a small shop. They had their own investors, right? And they were um, investors. And I, I don't want to um, say their name because sure. I respect these guys as entrepreneurs. They, you know, I did them wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. Um, you know, they didn't do anything wrong, but you could argue they made wrong decisions or trusted me or whatever. That's, that's a different conversation, but I deceived them for, so, you know, for my survival. Right. And, um, when they found that and those, those founders, I guess the point is they had worked for major firms, one of them, a big four, you know, audit firm. So they're used to looking at detailed documents and, um, do you hear that? Yeah. Is it, let me, let me is, go it go, is it going? Is it upstairs? Okay. Yes. We can edit <laughs> that out. Cool. I'll start over. So, um, all right. So, um, the auditors you, are looking, yeah, the, 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 the auditors that, that, you know, they had been auditors in their career previously before 
prior to starting their private lending company, right? With a focus on oil and gas lending. Um, so once they found out when you're talking about the game theory aspect and I knew like they, I, I'm really very similar to them, right? I have investors that I'm trying to avoid losing money for and they have investors that they're trying to avoid losing money for. And so I, you know, I'm thinking even if they find me out and they know exactly what I did, if they go and report me, there's no getting your money back, right? You may, you'll like, you'll get your, you'll get these assets, but they're, they're not in, they were short term lending. Like they were supposed to have their money back in six months with a very high interest rate, you know, and, and, um, and so for them, they're already like dealing with their internal investor relations issues. Like, Hey, how come this guy isn't liquid yet? You know, and, and how come we haven't gotten our money back yet? And so I took that chance with them and I was, I was out raising capital, talking and talking to university endowments. I mean, big time institutional investors, overseas institutional investors, family offices, and I would say you got to keep, you really have to put this in context about the world and where it was, right? We're in late, we're in mid 2020 to early 2021 now when I'm talking about, you know, I got the loan in December of 2019. They were supposed to be made whole by June or July of 2020. Well, COVID happened. Yeah. So they, they gave me. They gave me a pass at first, right? They're like, hey, we're going to give you three-month extension. And so I'm out trying to raise money in a pandemic. You know, nobody wants to meet face-to-face. -face, and this is a very face-to-face -face business. Somebody's going to stroke you a check. Yeah. You know, and my thinking was if I raise a patient capital structure, I've, I've, I've always had a very impatient capital structure. 18 months, I got to be liquid out of these assets, make the investors whole. And so my goal out in raising was like, Hey, get and I learned a lot as an entrepreneur, right? Like we all do in business. I learned, oh wow, there's these other investment type structures and medium term notes and you know uh, deal structures where I can get a seven to ten year runway. Yeah, let me go out and look for that. So then I started looking for that, and I was getting some traction even in the pandemic. And um, and and I've mentioned this before on other podcasts and maybe in the book. I can't remember exactly what I wrote in the book about it, but I talk about I was close I was close to getting a hundred million dollar check and um in order if I would have got that hundred million dollar check now I'm on a bigger level from bigger players right who are more in your shit you know mm -hmm. like your yeah. reporting's got to be top notch and everything right and so and I wasn't scared of that like I, I had a plan for how I was going to do it right I was going to we create a new entity that entity was going to take the hundred million and then I would say I was doing a deal, pay the lender off, you know, mark it up, move money around, do all the same thing and get everybody made whole, get all my retail old investors made whole. You're out of here. Now I've got five, seven, 10 years, whatever it is to deal with this one institutional investor and they're going to be patient, you know, and I'm going to be able to deal with like, all right, now I can reinvest royalty income. I can flip assets i could probably be even more open about taking a loss hey we had to take a loss on this deal because i overvalued it sorry and they'd still you know work with you probably but you know so that was my thinking um but 
in the strategy. That was my thinking of why I was doing this, right? And there were some people who were like, you know, why didn't you just keep lying? And I was so, I, I mean, I don't even think, you know, people can understand when I say this. Like, I was so suicidal. I was, and when you, and you brought this up and this is why I went off on this tangent because integrity did mean something to me. It was one of our core values of our company. And I, we had it painted on our wall at the office and I literally walked by it every morning to my office and it says integrity, professionalism, excellence. And I'm like looking at it. I'm like, what, you know, like I'm living this lie. And then when somebody asked me, Hey, how are you doing, Chris? That's a lie. I said, yo, I'm great. You know? So every little aspect of my life was a lie. And it was, I, I mean, you ever get so stressed out where you feel it in your neck and your head and like, and I mean, it was just that constant and I would, I was checked out of my family life. So I'd go home at night. I, I mean, I was working like from four thirty in the morning till like 10, 11 at night because I'd stay late at the office to do all my bad forging documents, sending emails, you know, doing all the stuff I couldn't do during the day that I didn't want anybody to see. You know, and so then I'd get home at night. My kids are already in bed. My wife is pissed off at me, and I just go sit in the backyard with a glass of whiskey and just stare off into space and wonder what, you know, I think I'd be better off if I just shoot myself. And, you know, like the investors would at least, I had a uh, what's called a key man policy, and and it would have at least given them some some money, you know, and that's what was going in my head. I'm like, if if I shoot myself, my kids will have money, but if I go forward with this, I'm going to lose everything and nobody's going to have anything. The investors aren't going to have anything. My family's not going to have anything. I'm going to go to jail. Like, I, and so I was literally doing this cost benefit analysis of suicide in my head, like almost all the time. And, um, you know, and I, I've been on a spiritual journey, like where I've been trying to become more like, uh, in touch with my faith. And, you know, there was a time in my life, I would say, I, I wouldn't say I was an atheist, but I was pretty damn close, like just from my experiences in the Marine Corps and, you know, but I'd, I'd come back to being a Christian and going to Bible study and stuff. And, and so that was another thing. It was like, I'm such a hypocrite. Like, I'm here at church. I'm, I'm uh, at Bible study reading these things and, and, you know, and reading the Bible every morning. And everything's, like, just punching me in the eye saying, you know, you got to change what you're doing. And, you know, I think all those things I just mentioned coupled with another thing, and I would get this thought in my um, – in my head quite a bit that I could see myself, um, you know, I got these awards like 40 under 40 for Houston business journal and heart energy and whatever. And those were, you know, there was some legitimacy to those because some of the things they wrote were, were, were definitely true. Like I had done some things that created a nonprofit that helped veterans and, and, um, a, a Christian Academy and stuff co-founded one. And, you know, those were, those were great things I was proud of. But at the same time I was thinking, look, Maybe I'll be a guest, you know, if I, if I build this successful thing and I cover up all this bad stuff and these losses and, and make it whole in the way that I had described, you know, with the, with the new fund and everything, let's say I had made that happen. The rest of my life, I was going to have to be a hypocrite. Like you think about, and I went to a very small college, Norwich University up in Vermont, 2,000 people, you know, to maybe 3,000 now, but I could probably get invited back to speak, you know, like, oh, look at one of our alums, successful oil and gas guy down in Houston. And I'm going to sit in front of a graduating class of college students and talk about success and integrity and all these things, these buzzwords that you have to say. And I'm, I don't want to live the rest of my life as a freaking liar. 
Like that was one of the big things. I was like, I just, I'd rather go turn myself in now, pay the piper and, and start over. Like, you know, who's so. the first person that you shared this with that you were committing fraud? So again, I, I, I told the lenders a little bit. I said, Hey, I lied to you. I've done wrong. I misreported some things. I don't, I didn't explain how I did it, you know, but the first people, the first person I told the whole story to was my lawyer and he set up the meeting, you know, with the, with the feds. And then I sent an email out on April 9th that got sent around and some people seen, you know, I think it's floating around the internet somewhere. Um, but I mean, my wife didn't, my wife was CC'd or blind copied on that email and that's how she found out. Really? She, and and one of our largest investors who who I probably did more wrong than than any of the investors because he loaned me money also like and I'd lied and said yeah I'll 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 let you have my house if I can't make good on this. Well, I told another investor that too, but that other investor, a group of investors actually they said, "Well, we want a pre-signed deed." So I mean, I knew going to this other guy um, that if I took his money and I failed, like he was going to be screwed. So, I mean, I did, and this is a family friend, like mm. our, his grandson and my son are best friends, like literally best friends, go to school together, play soccer together. And my wife sitting like on the same bench on the sidelines of a soccer game that night when I sent the email out and I, you know, I, People are like, why didn't you tell your wife? And I mean, like, I didn't want my wife to know and be implicated or like have any, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, I was, you know, I mean, I don't even know how to, how to talk about it now, you know, but, uh, but yeah, nobody knew anything. So I was, I was literally on this island myself, like nobody knew anything. My employees, you know, like I said, the lenders had a, had a slight idea, but it was like, I'm I'm assuming from the lender that they're thinking, oh, this guy's just a, an asshole. He lied to me. I don't think they thought there was anything criminal. They just thought, you know, screw him. We're gonna make us whole, or we're gonna make your life miserable. Something like that, you know, sue you or something, yeah. right? But um, yeah. So you know, so when I went and turned myself in and had that, you know, it was like a for lack of better terms, uh, interrogation. I, and I don't want to make it sound like it wasn't an interrogation. Like we think of the word. It's just, that's the literal yeah. word of, you know, questioning by the feds, but, uh, they, their jaws literally dropped. Like I'm talking, you can imagine sitting in a room and they're like, you know, wow. Like they, they were just astonished that I would come and turn myself in. I think they're used to chasing people down and then, you know, if they get them to admit to it, that's that's a big if, right? A lot of people plead no contest or not guilty and go to trial and risk it, you know, and I, there, nobody knew anything, and I just went and turned myself in, and, you know, one of the uh, the FBI agents said, you know, that in their 16 years or 17 years, I can't remember what she said, of, of she's never had one person go turn themselves in like that, you know? Mm. And, so, and that's, that's a big part of the story, too, about... So the thing that got my, my attention that I reached out to you about, and I really want to have him come on the podcast with you, was you'd kind of, you're kind of sitting there going, and the LinkedIn post you put was like, it's been 14 months. 
since it's then you expected that day to tell them and then literally get it yeah know, like in the movies right yeah i took an uber to the meeting because i thought i was gonna leave in handcuffs i didn't want my wife to have to come pick up my car you know <laughs> pick right. up my truck right so so you're thinking that and and yet 14 months later not only are you not but you haven't been formally charged either yeah right and so it's just kind of sitting there and there, so there's this and that creates a whole nother scenario of you know going back to the million kind of wtf over kind of thing like what which way or the other way? And it's not just a sense of like, oh, you know, Chris needs to go to jail. And it's more than you can't get all of your life, as we were talking about at lunch a little bit. Like you're, you're in limbo. You can't. What do you do? How do you do it? Uh, and I just got to, I guess, maybe kind of speak to what the last 14 months have been like as well. Man, it's been, it, it's been probably one of the hardest times of my life. And, and I don't want to, you know, I don't, I'm not looking for sympathy, but um it has. It's been hard. And, and I also, you know, I think the investors, I always try to be empathetic. Like, to, you know, what are they like? And I, I mean, they've got to feel like they've been failed by the system. Like here it is. Um, and my lawyer said, you should never talk bad about the government, you know, in your situation. <laughs> but it's like, you know, here it is a guy that went and turned himself in and all the evidence and is cooperating and they've done nothing. And then you've got guys running, hiding, whatever, and they're going to spend their time and resources like chasing a guy that stole, let's say, $500,000. I'm not saying that guy shouldn't be prosecuted or whatever or given, in, given some effort. But, you know, I guess in my, you know, male mind focus on efficiency, it's like, hey, take the low-hanging fruit. I'm giving you a layup here. Like, just take it and let's all get on with our lives because – you know, selfishly, I want to get this behind me. Um, not selfishly, I want the investors to be able to at least say, hey, he got punished, you know. And, and some people make comments like, oh, it's it's federal prison anyway. It's club fed or whatever. I mean, I think people watch too many movies, you know, and think it, it, I, it's not um, – it's definitely not uh, Shawshank Redemption. Don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not like behind bars all the time, but it's – you lose your freedom. You sleep when you're told to sleep. You – go work on a working party and, you know, and, and you're also giving up your freedom for the rest of life. And I'm, I was just saying time 34. That's fine. No, just, you know, you give up your freedom for the rest of your life in a sense, because then you lose rights and privileges that a normal citizen who's not a felon, uh, still have. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to get all political here, but I, I value a lot of my rights that I know I'm not going to have, uh, anymore. Um, after I become a felon. And um, so anyway, long story short, I think it, it's in everybody's best interest to get this behind us so that I can also do a better job at making restitution. I've had some job opportunities where people are like, you know, Chris, I'd hire you and we could do some big stuff and, you know, you could make a lot of money, but not if three months from now um, – you're going to go away and now we started some big project and now you're, you're gone. And so, um, I think I could do a better job at, at, uh, restitution and trying to make everybody whole if we just get this behind us, you know, what's the, uh, what's the dynamic now at home with your family? Um, can't, I can only imagine that it was, uh, one of the toughest parts of this was when your wife found out, but you probably had to have a talk with your kids at some point. Yeah, you know, and um, I don't know what the right answer is as far as how to handle my kids. I'll get to that. But to, to answer your question directly, it, it's actually better than expected. We're still married. Uh, 
we we live with my in-laws now we pay rent my wife's the breadwinner now and you know and um it's not an ideal situation no i don't think living with your in-laws isn't anything most people want to do um but we're blessed to have a roof over our head and i'm blessed to still be married and i don't think my two sons know exactly uh you know i don't think they understand the gravity of the situation but I did talk to them, and one thing, you know, what I was alluding to earlier about not knowing how to handle it, I've been open. Like, you know, we all have Bluetooth now, right? Like every yeah. car has Bluetooth. Well, I get phone calls from the feds one time as I'm picking up my kids from school, and I'm talking to the FBI agent about my potential future, and my kids are sitting in the back seat, so they hear it. They're not, they're young, you know, they're 13 and 11, but still they're not stupid, you know, like they're, so I don't know what's going through their mind. I hope that the lesson they take from me is, um, is, you know, like, Hey, dad screwed up, but at least he went and faced the music instead of being on the run or denying it or not facing it. So I hope that's the lesson they take. And then I hope the larger lesson they take and that everybody can take is that, um, you know, failure is an option. We, we say so many times, we, it's, it's like a, it's like this battle cry that we all love and rally behind. Oh, failure's not an option, you know, rah, 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 you know, but no, if you say failure is not an option, it means that you're do you're willing to do whatever it takes not to fail. And that means losing your whatever character. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it takes. Right. And so that's not the right attitude to have. I'm not saying give up at the first sign of fail, uh, of challenge or you know whatever hardship but you gotta be there's a time when it's like you know what this isn't working and let's keep our integrity intact our character intact and fail in a graceful manner that does right or is right by everybody as you can you know and i think one thing is like it's okay to lose money on a bad investment it sucks but if you didn't commit fraud and you just lost money because you you've made a bad decision or you screwed up on your business calculations or whatever like, yeah, pe people might sue you, but man, if I can just send any word of caution to anybody out in the audience, like, it doesn't matter what, uh, don't cover, like, <laughs> don't go down the path I went down just to try not to, you know, not to fail. So, so to that, I'm kind of curious, educated in all kinds of ways, practical, uh, as well as a formal embrace MBA and stuff of that nature, was there anything that you could have been told differently or, or exposed to, or do you think would have helped you maybe make a, a better decision? Or was there anything, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah look, uh, um, I think one of the, we're, we're, our industry is so regulated and, and when I say our industry, I, I mean oil and gas, but also like investments. Right. But sometimes regulated in the wrong way, right? Like you have to pay, let's say anywhere from 60000 to $150,000 for an off-the-shelf operating document if you want to be a fund manager. You go to this firm and you say, hey, I want a private placement memorandum and a limited partnership agreement so that I can raise capital and, and use investors' money to do things. And they'll give you this off-the-shelf document. you got to pay an arm and a leg for it. And nowhere in there is there, in case of emergency break glass, you know, like here's how you do it. There's no manual for being like, how can you, they, there's this buzzword going around now, right? Called like an emerging manager. Like you're, you're new at managing people's money. That should be okay. We're an entrepreneurial society, a capitalist society. Like 
just because you don't have experience being a fund manager doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to take outside capital to to run your business and get create a win-win situation, right? But it's there's not a lot of defined, um, you know, instruction manual out there for how to do that, how to handle certain situations. And I, I think that's somewhere, if I would have had like a playbook, you know, like, look, when things go bad and they probably will, here's how you handle it. Who knows? Maybe I wouldn't have. Maybe I wouldn't have turned to that page and I would have had too much ego to mm -hmm. go there. But I think that failure is not an option that I was saying earlier. If, that, if, if I had adopted that mindset prior, then I think I, we wouldn't be sitting here today. Wow. Well, Chris Bentley, we really appreciate you sharing this story, um, being open with us. I, I hope the folks that have listened to this story um, have gotten some value out of it. I know I have. Um, I think it's pretty rare for someone who has admittedly done some of the things that you've done would be willing to sit down and talk openly. You, you wrote a book about it. You've, you've spoken with us today. You've spoken with other folks. Um, and the future is uncertain for you. As you said earlier, um, this is in a lot of ways still hanging over your head. You don't know what's going to happen in terms of uh, potential uh, prosecution, that sort of thing. So um, I, I do believe that uh, it does take some courage to sit down as you did today with us and tell your story. Um, man, we wish you the best. We thank you for, for being on with us. And uh, Sean, yeah. thank you, man, for setting this whole thing up. <laughs> sure. And for, and for being my wingman today. Great job. It was great to have you on, man. Yeah, and I just want to say one last thing. Again, I was really impressed that you can all hear it. Uh, I wish these things weren't as rare. I mean, I don't, I don't wish that this incident had ever happened anyway, but the accountability and the integrity you're showing in that regard you can't go back and change the other bad decisions and, the, and you're forthright with them, which I think has to mean something somewhere. And then just the ability to say uh, and then admit them versus this dog and pony show of, of not knowing when you knew you did it. I think that has to account for something. Yeah. So I thought it was great to come on the show. Hopefully like get, again, the listeners, and my thing is there's some, probably somebody out there listening, you know, who's gone through this in some degree. I, I do not think you're the first. <laughs> this isn't who got that hundred million and, we, and nobody ever knew about it. But uh, hopefully it's just a, not a warning shot, but definitely, hey, it's never too late to do the right thing and from an integrity standpoint. So I have to applaud you for that. Thank you. I and appreciate it, you guys having me. You, you bet, guys. We, we've had Chris Bentley on today. He is the author of Burning Bellatorum, the story of a $40 million fraud and its priceless lessons for investors and entrepreneurs. You can check that out on Amazon. Um, all of the proceeds post-tax for this book go to restoring the victims of, uh, of the fraud that we've been discussing today. So um, if you're interested in learning more about this story, getting into more of the details, there's a lot more in this book than what we were able to cover today. Um, so check it out on Amazon. And hey, thank you again for pressing that play button on the OGGN. You've been listening to Journey to the Energy C-Suite. We'll be back soon again with another great interview.